just have to have people slaying the spirit and experiencing. Keep up with Dave. Right. I'll, I'll try. I'll try, Dave. <laughs> you know, I always like, um, yeah, missionary stories that you can't even explain. You're like, I'm not entirely sure what happened, but it was amazing. You know, that's, that's a good sign. Cool. Well, this morning we're starting a new series. We're going to be in a series on the book of Exodus for the next um, couple of months, um, something like that. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. It's a very uh, well-known story. We have even made movies about it. Um, how many of us have actually seen like Charlton Heston, like the Ten Commandments? You know, I always used to be on network TV on Easter Sunday, and so you're you're bored, you've just had your big meal, you're like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll watch, um, you know, this movie. Um, it was made into um, Prince of Egypt. I don't know if anyone saw Prince of Egypt. They, they made a try at it, got some good songs. I personally have never watched it. Um, you know, all this week I was reading commentaries, and I just should have made myself some popcorn and watched Prince of Egypt. So I think that's what my kids think I do half the time anyways. I'll have like candy left over from youth group and I'll, you know, you just, you've got snacks for the kids, right? So I, I put it around my desk or hide it under my desk and my kids come in like, I knew it, mom. I knew this was how you spent your life and this, this is what work is like. I'm like, no, it's just for the youth group. It's not my own personal candy. Um, but anyways, Exodus is a well-known story, um, but we're going to take uh, another look at it and see how it really applies to our own lives this morning. Um, to start us off, a, uh, a burglar breaks into a house. He's looking around. He spots, he spots a nice item. He's going for it, and he hears, Jesus is watching you. Startled. He looks around. Doesn't see anybody, so he goes ahead. You know, he, he puts whatever electronic item into his bag. Here's again, Jesus is watching you. Looks around, he spots a parrot. Why do jokes always have parrots in them? I know zero people who have a talking parrot. Anyways, um, burglar says, who are you? Parrot says, I'm Moses. <laughs> who names a parrot Moses? I don't know, says Moses. I guess the same people who named their Rottweiler Jesus. But Exodus is well enough known that we can even make some jokes about it. Um, we've got this one. See if, uh, yep, Steve Jobs meets Moses. And it's been a while since he got those tablets. He needs them upgraded. Um, or uh, this next gem. After 39 years of wandering in the desert, Mrs. Moses secretly asks for directions. You know, the women laugh. They're like, I believe the Bible is what it says it is, but we understand the truth behind this. Or the last one. Hey, uh, Bible jokes, Bible jokes. But Exodus, we can even make Bible jokes off of it. It's well known. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It was written by Moses. Uh, the genre of the book is, is history, but it's kind of history plus. It's got some extra stuff, um, poetry, law, um, and really uh, it's not a history given in every detail. To give a play-by-play -play narration of every event would be unrealistic, um, and the writer leaves out some details that you know we would have expected in a normal history because, frankly, he just doesn't care. So, for example, um, in the book of Exodus, we are never told the name of Pharaoh. 
And this has sent critics and theologians and historians just into conniptions. How can you not tell us the name of Pharaoh? To our best guess, it's uh, Thutmose III or Ramses II, but the writer just doesn't care. And there's a feeling of like, you know, once you've seen one Pharaoh, you've seen them all. And cruel dictators are just interchangeable. And besides, Pharaoh is... He's kind of besides the point. He may be the protagonist of it all, but he's beside the point. You know whose names we do get told? The names of the Israelite midwives who saved the Hebrew babies as they're being born. Shifra and Pua. We know their names. Shifra and Pua. Because Exodus is not just a regular history. It's history with a point. It's got a point that it's going to. And the point is how God saves and delivers his people out of oppression. It's a history with with a deep personal story that it's trying to tell about the Israelites' experience, how God saves, rescues, and redeems, and what it looks like to live in God's redemption. Exodus is the story of God rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and then leading them into the promised land to be a special community of faith. Exodus is part of our salvation history, and it tells us what it looks like to live in God's salvation. So this morning, um, we've got a little bit of a longer passage of Scripture. I've asked uh, Carrie Poe to come and uh, read it for us in just a minute because y'all don't want to listen to me for that long of a time. But let me pray for us, um, and then we'll start reading Exodus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, that through all the history and stories of the Bible, through all the works that you've done, that your heart is for us. That your history has a purpose and a point, and it is for us. It's to bring us to you. It's to see your goodness and your grace expand in our time and in our lives, Jesus. This morning we give our attention to you. We put aside worries of of the morning or the week or the weekend, Jesus. We give our attention to you, Jesus. We look to you, to what you have for us. Would we, as we read scripture this morning, not just be hearers of the word, but doers? Would it speak to our hearts? Would it change us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Carrie, if you want to come on forward, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapters 1 and chapters 2. And then Israel's sons lived in Egypt after Joseph saved them from the famine. The descendants of Israel multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to the people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. But the more the Egyptians oppressed their Israelite slaves, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. Then Pharaoh gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. 
But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to grow and multiply. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi gave birth to a son. When the mother saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little baby was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Reuel, the priest of Midian, had daughters come as usual to draw water from the well. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. In time, Moses married Zipporah. Later she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Thank you. Thanks. It's a longer section, but I just think it's good to read scripture together. Um, and, you know, you always want somebody with a little bit of an accent to read for you. So thanks, Carrie. Um, so we start out and we see that Pharaoh is not happy with how things are going. We're not given like a socioeconomic account of everything that's happened, but the Israelites are maintaining their identity They're having babies, they're being fruitful and multiplying, and Pharaoh's like, "Uh uh-uh, not having it, right? God told them that he would bless them to be a blessing to others. God told them to have full families, to live out their calling, to be a light and a witness to everyone around them, Uh, and Pharaoh is not happy with it. 
Pharaoh stands against the commands of God for the Israelites to to thrive and, and to flourish. And since Pharaoh seeks to exploit the, the Israelites, he has three solutions, slavery, killing the male babies, and then killing the male children. Ultimately, this isn't about Moses and Pharaoh. This isn't about the, the Israelites versus the Egyptians. It's about God versus oppression. It's about life and death. It's about slavery versus freedom. It's about rescue and redemption against captivity. Uh, the story of Exodus is God, it starts with God's plan. It starts back in Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve, these good people created in the image of God, but with the, the baggage of choosing self over the glory of God. And then God creates these people, and he, he gives a call to Abraham, an old man with a barren wife, and says, you, really unlikely dude, I'm going to give you children and grandchildren, create a great nation out of you. This starts in God's plan. This is God's idea. And in Genesis 15, he promises Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him. And he also says in Genesis 15 that he knows that the Israelites will spend 400 years in captivity, uh, but that he will free them. And I think when we think about how this whole nation of Israel, this whole Jewish people get started. You know, we see that it's God's plan. It's God's initiative. This world is God's idea. He has a plan for it. And then it's God who saves. God who calls out. God who chooses Abraham. God who rescues and saves and intervenes. And that there's a divine purpose and covenant between the people of Israel and with God. God made a promise to the people of Abraham, not not other way around, right? The people didn't say, hey, God, we have an idea. We're going to be successful, and when we, we get to be successful, then we're going to bless our neighbors. No, God said, I promise. I promise to bless you, to be a blessing to others. Kind of a revolutionary idea that God makes promises to people, uh, and then people join with him in, in covenant and join people in God's plan for them. But when we look at the story of Israel, the problem belongs to God. The world is God's idea. He has a plan for it, and he is the one who will fix it. As creator, God owns the conflict. He owns the story. It's his idea. He has a plan for it all. So into this very messy, tragic, um, even a hopeless situation uh, as they're in slavery. Moses is born. Miraculously, Moses is spared. He is saved. And then in kind of a crazy twist and turn, he lives as Pharaoh's adopted son. Uh, He gets to live. That's good, but his childhood has got to be traumatic and confusing still. You know, Pharaoh was raised in Moses, or sorry, vice versa. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. And just think for a moment, like, how crazy that is. Because we, we read the story and we're like, oh, good for him. Yay, he got out. That's such a happy turn for him. Like, he made it. Cha-ching. He gets to live in, like, Daddy Warbuck's house. This is the best thing, right? But if we think for a moment how crazy it is, I mean, how many of us would actually want to live in the White House? I know it has like a movie theater and a bowling alley inside of it. It's pretty cushy. But would we actually want to be barren or 
Sasha and Malia's adopted brother. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot to, to live into. It's a great place to visit. It makes a great story. But to have that as your childhood, like, that's kind of crazy. And he should be happy about it, right? He escaped. He made it out. You know, he, he escaped poverty. He escaped slavery. He should be happy about it, right? He, he has material goods. He's, he's got nice clothes, a, a great house, an elite education. He has a chariot, for goodness sakes. Like, you know, he got a place of privilege paid for by the labor of his own people. He got to live in safety and security while the rest of the Israelites worked in fear. He was separated from the suffering of his own people. It was about him, his comfort, his safety, his security, his you know, new adopted immediate family, not the larger family of God's people. This is something that we are familiar with, we too in America get to live behind the walls of Pharaoh's house. We can call it materialism, escapism, individualism, but we can escape the suffering of God's other children around us. We can live comfortably and securely, not bothered by the suffering of others around us in the world. Moses had to get out of Pharaoh's house. He had to get out of safety and security and privilege. And so one day he goes to visit his people. You know, calls it his people, right? Where did he belong? Who were his people? You know, his identity. Um, you know, was he happy with his, his riches, with his position? Um, was he happy that he had a chariot? Or did it, did it sicken him? Did it burden him? So he goes out. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. During his visit, Moses saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Moses saw a great injustice and he got angry. The Egyptians had all the power. The Israelites could not serve enough, work enough, give enough, be small enough, satisfy enough. It was just take, take, take. And it makes you want to scream. It makes you want to cry. Uh, uh, Moses felt the tragedy of his mother giving up her baby because it was what was best for him. And, and Moses must have felt the pain of separation from his sister who had protected him. And Moses felt the, the cruel curiosity gnaw at him about his brothers and his cousins. Had they also been beaten by Egyptian slave masters? So he kills the Egyptian. And in some ways we understand you know, if we are not so comfy, cozy in Pharaoh's house, we understand. And in some ways, we don't understand that anger and, and that pain boiling over. But his actions were neither brave nor bold, nor did they affect any real change. Friends, if we don't have a heart for justice, then our purposes are not aligned with God's purposes. We see here that God is on the side of the slave, the suffering, the oppressed. We have to care. We have to be on God's team 
in this. But on the other hand, if we are in team, you and me are going to fight evil. We're going to make it all right. Well, that's going to destroy us. That's going to boil over in self-destructive anger, and we cannot carry that weight. So Moses' anger boils over. He doesn't know what to do with the suffering and the injustice around him. He makes a big mistake. He flees to Midian. And immediately, actually, in Midian, we see some progress, some maturity. He sits down next to a well. A well, besides being you know, where you get hydrated, is also a symbol in the Bible for, for the soul. It's kind of those deep waters, the, the deep places of the person. He sits down beside this well, and he sees some shepherds abusing some local girls going about their chores. And... He doesn't kill the shepherds. You know, he has an appropriate, measured response to this injustice. Moses will spend decades as a regular, ordinary shepherd uh, before he is able to lead his people into liberation. He will spend decades of just working. I think God will be working in his soul in those decades as an ordinary person before he is able to lead his people and to actually rescue his people. He had a heart for it. He wanted to do it. He was angry about it before. But it's going to take him decades of being a regular shepherd in Midian before uh, God can use him. Moses' early story is that of leaving his comfort zone, seeing and caring about injustice, getting angry and making a big mistake, and then learning some maturity and learning to trust God in this process. And I don't want to you know, for us to rush ahead in the story. You know, reading just chapters 1 and 2, it's really tempting to say, oh yeah, but, you know, God will save them and, you know, it'll work out and, you know, God wins, the good guy wins in the end. But I don't want us to rush ahead in the story. I want us to just kind of sit with Moses and sit with him as he watches his people, you know, go through uh, slavery and just the oppression and the futility and the injustice of it all, so um, helpless against it. Moses had every reason to be angry. And he had no real reason to expect change. Egypt was the most powerful country in the whole world. You know, they're not going to give up their free labor. No one had any leverage against Egypt. Things aren't going to change. Moses had no reason to be optimistic. This is how it was. One person held all the power, had all, you know, the advantage in this situation. He did not have a reason to be optimistic. Optimism says, you know, I expect this to change factually. I expect this situation to get better. Uh, We live in the best of all possible worlds. You know, I expect this good thing to happen. But Moses had no reason to expect freedom for his people. However, he did have a reason to hope. Because through it all, he was alive because he could look inside himself and see that he was stirred both to compassion and to action. Because after he made a terrible mistake, he was right now sitting in a place of peace by a well in Midian. Optimism and hope are really very similar. But, you know, optimism says, I expect a positive outcome. Hope says, 
I expect, even if there is a negative outcome, for good to still come. You know, who, who here is optimistic about 2020? Oh, two hands, two hands. I am optimistic about 2020. I am. Who, who here is optimistic about um, maybe their goals, maybe health goals for 2020? Anyone? Goals? Optimism? Who here has hope, even if they don't make it to the gym five times a week, that their health can still improve in 2020? Hope? Yeah, hope, hope. Hope's a good thing. Who here is optimistic about the election in 2020? Silence, absolute silence. (laughs) We may or may not have reasons to be optimistic. I'm optimistic, but optimism comes and goes. We definitely have a reason to be hopeful. In our own lives, we have reason to hope. We're here this morning. You have people who love you. You know, don't, don't discount the miracle of having people who love you. We have reasons to hope if our heart wants things to be right and good. That's a reason to hope. And most of all, Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen to life again. We can say with confidence that the Lord of the universe is on our side, that he loves us in all things, no matter what, through everything, till the end of time. We have reasons to hope. Because someone else is on the job for us. In Midian, Moses had to learn that he could not save his people. He had to learn his limits, but he also got to learn God's limitlessness. There is a Savior. There is somebody who will rescue and fix and mend what is broken, and it is not us. We try. We try. We try so hard. We help and and we give and we we talk for long hours and we cajole and and argue and, and bribe. And half the time, we just end up getting burnt out. Sometimes we've helped. Sometimes we haven't. Sometimes we have enabled. Sometimes we ourselves have gotten enmeshed. I am not the Savior, but I know who is. And that's what Moses had to learn in Midian, that he was not the Savior, but there was someone else who is. And the truth was that God was coming soon and God was going to break out and do more than Moses could have ever hoped or imagined. Uh, Let's watch this video that I think just kind of ties it all together for us. Who is God? What is his name? These are the questions answered for us in the book of Exodus. God raises up a deliverer, a man named Moses, and discloses who he is by speaking out of a bush engulfed in flames. God tells Moses who he is by God telling Moses his name. Who is God? God is I am. 
and I am was with them when he heard and responded to Israel's cries. I am was with them when the plagues came down before Pharaoh's eyes. I am was with them when he saved Israel and punished Egypt in the Red Sea. I am was with them when he gave manna for the people to eat. I am was with them on the mountain when he made his glory and power prominent. I am was with them in the tabernacle when he filled the tent with his glory as he had promised. I am was with them because that's who God is. A God who enters into our story, working behind, among, through, above, everything in the world to show us his glory. Who is God? God is I am. But there is more to this picture. There is more of God to be seen in the pages of Exodus. For everything the I Am did through Moses, he did in an even greater way through Jesus. Jesus was with us by becoming human as a response to our cries. Like Moses stepped out of Egypt, this new deliverer stepped out of heaven and walked by our side. Jesus was with us because the true plagues of sin and death had made their takeover. So Jesus became sin and was pinned under death so these plagues might pass us over. Jesus was with us by falling under the waves to open a gracious path of dry ground so that we who deserve to be lost in the water like Egypt instead, like Israel, can be found. Jesus is with us today in our deepest hunger and hardest strife, for through his spirit and word, he provides for us like he provided for Israel, but this time we get the bread of life. Jesus is with us as God was on the mountain with Moses, but instead of man climbing up to find God, Jesus came down and found us. Jesus was and is and will be with us because as his body was opened, so was the tabernacle tent so he can make us and the world his dwelling, both now and when he comes again. Who is God? Who has he revealed himself to be in the pages of Exodus? He is I am. He is with us. God is our rescuer. God is Jesus. So friends, this is who God is. It's the one who sees our suffering, who wants the best for us, who calls us out, and who wants this world to be a place of justice and freedom and flourishing for all his children. And the good news is that the God who brought out the Israelites out of Egypt is the God who wants to bring you and me out of our places of captivity and suffering. He's a God who saves and saves and saves and saves and saves. Through it all, let's stand together. We're going to enter a time of worshiping through music. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are not a God who stands idly by. You don't sit up in heaven and just... Think nice spiritual thoughts for your people. But you are a God who takes action in our lives, just like you did for the Israelites. And we can trust you, Jesus, right here and right now.
that you will make a way for us, that your heart is for us 100%. And Jesus, this morning, we want to align our purposes with yours, Jesus. And um, yeah, I just think like, yeah, I don't want to sit comfortably in Pharaoh's house if the Holy Spirit is outside stirring up a storm, wanting flourishing and thriving. Um, Jesus, we want to declare and to stand this morning um, that we want to stand with you in your purposes for justice um, and freedom and flourishing for all your people this morning, Jesus. We want to be on your side in that, Lord God. And when you say you're the one who does it, not us. We want to receive your redemption. We want to receive your salvation, Jesus. We believe that you win, and we want to to see your victory. We want to see you win. We want to go with you in that and see you do what you do best to bring health and healing and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. Let's sing together um, and celebrate what God has done for us.